Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson, investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff, columnist editorial board member Carrie Clapp. And uh, before we get started, I had to mention this because we we recently asked Kerry uh, if he would join us as a regular on the podcast, and uh, he was nice enough to say yes. And so we're just really glad th- that he did. And uh, Kerry, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I couldn't turn down that money. It's irresistible. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. I think I think I think somebody lied to you about that. Oh, yeah. oh I wasn't supposed to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I, I I got you under fa- false pretenses. Uh, so you know the big news last week in in local politics was the announcement from uh, County Judge Nelson Wolf that he will not be seeking another term in 2022. wasn't exactly a big surprise. He had said in 2018 when he was. Uh, you know, running uh, for re-election that year, that this would be his last term. But politicians change their minds all the time. And, uh, you know, he hadn't really made any public statements recently about it. So when he spoke to the Chamber of Commerce last week during his uh, State of the County address and said, he's definitely not running again, it was it was still big news. Um, and Carrie, I wanted to start with you just to, to get a sense from you that, you know, his... Uh, I don't think there's really anybody we can really compare him to in, in terms of San Antonio or Bexar County politics. Uh, you know, the, the legacy of, of, of this is someone who got elected to state legislature in 1970 and 51 years later, where we're, we're talking about him. Um, and he's still a major figure in, in San Antonio politics. I mean, when you look back at his, his legacy, I mean, what, what stands out to you? I think the, um, the durability Times effectiveness, times relevance, mm-hmm. because he's 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 leaving at the top of his game. I mean, we did see during uh, we have seen during the COVID era that the way he kind of ceded some ground to 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 Mayor Nirenberg and him take the lead, but he's at the top of his game, and and I, I think it's you know I've said it, you wrote about it. I, there's just no one like him in the history of San Antonio Bear County politics. Uh, he, he's, he's the most influential. Um, if you were having a Mount Rushmore of, of San Antonio Bear County elected mm-hmm. officials with only four, you'd put him up there, you'd put Henry Cisneros up there, and then you'd have a debate about the other two. I'm, I'd be interested, frankly, in hearing what, who y'all think would be, uh, would be the other two. I'd, yeah. I'd go with, with Henry B and Lala, but it's, it, but it's definitely Nelson and Henry. Well, you know, know Julian Castro. The thing with Julian and, and, and Joaquin is they're forty-seven, mm-hmm. and, and again we can we, we can only have four. And so with Julian and Joaquin, there's still so much that they can do that they can you know twenty thirty years from now they can just uh, rechisel Mount Rushmore. And of course with them, if they rechisel <laughs> re- re- it, we only have to put on on one face. And don't have to say who it is, and then, you know, just let the debate go on from there. But yeah, I mean, for right now, it's like you, you're naming the NBA's top fifty yeah. players, and it's maybe Shaq's second or third year. He'll be what up there. But it was too early, so I think with the Castros, they can still be up there eventually. You know, I, I love the, the the way you compared him to you know uh, I think it was on Twitter where you you mentioned Nolan Ryan and I thought that was a really good. I mean, this because you know when Nolan Ryan, as great as he was, there were always other pitchers, you know, whether it was Steve Carlton or Tom Seaver or Jim Palmer, who maybe was a little more acclaimed, uh, but he kind of, he outlasted every, all of them. 
And by the end of it, I think you kind of looked at just the body of work and, and thought, oh my God, what is, look what this guy's accomplished. And I think that that's, when you look at all these different projects that Nelson Wolf was involved in, you know, the, the Tobin Center for the Performing Arts, the, the, the Mission Reach, um, of the River Extension, uh, you know, the hospital system, um, you know, San, San Pedro, uh, you know, Creek. I mean, all these different things. I mean, Greg, when you look back, I mean, and Nelson Wolf's made that you've, you've, you've covered and he's, he's mentioned you in his, in his, in, uh, in his book, when he talked about the Toyota deal and stuff and your coverage of that, um, what, what stands out to you? Yeah. I mean, to me, he's, he's kind of the County judge of big projects. I mean, he's been involved in so many of the, the largest capital projects we've seen over the last 20 years. I mean, you know, in addition to uh, his involvement in bringing Toyota to San Antonio in 2003, although I think even even Nelson would say Henry Cisneros had much more to do with that than he did. But he, you know, he worked that quite mm-hmm. a bit. But, it, you know, looking at just the built environment, you know, look, look at San Pedro Cultural Park, San Pedro Creek Cultural Park. The Tobin uh, AT&T Center Mission Reach. I mean, he's really left like a you know a really big footprint on the San Antonio landscape. But I think you know he he had you know he had the uh, the history and the respect and the gravitas to do that. His successor, like whoever that is, like whoever takes his place as county judge, is going to struggle with having that same kind of heft to them. And I, I, I think we're probably not going to see really big projects uh, coming from the county judge for at least a few years. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, you know, you're going to see a lot more, you know, focus on education and poverty reduction than mm-hmm. you did under Nelson Wolf. It's going to be less about kind of the built environment. Yeah. Cause I mean, he kind of expanded the power of the County judge's office. I mean, he, he yeah. sort of, he sort oh, of yeah, made totally. power for it. That was not necessarily there at Brian. I know that, you know, in your years as a columnist, I mean, you know, Nelson Wolf is obviously one of the, the, the political figures that you d- dealt with a lot. Well, you know, what, what stood out to you about him and just, and he was kind of, he was kind of a unique person too, as far as, I mean, he's pr- pretty blunt and, and pretty much speaks his mind. And that's funny that you say that, that, that was, that was going to be my point. I mean, he's, he definitely has a certain folksy charm to him. Um, and he is very much, uh, to the point and, you know, uh, very curt, but, uh, also very accessible. I mean, one thing I'll always remember about Nelson is that, uh, you know, we're all under incredible pressure, deadline pressure as journalists, especially as columnists. But if I called him, uh, he would always return my call uh, uh, fairly quickly. And no matter what question I put to him, even if it was something he he didn't want to talk about, which was often the case, he would answer it uh, truthfully. And I often was able to break news just based on Mm -hmm. uh, Nelson Wolf being uh, honest and accessible with me. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. Let me say, I've, I've been able to uh, get profanity into the newspaper twice. <laughs> both, t- both times in, in Nelson Wolf quotes. Yes. Me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> me too. yeah, he, uh, one time uh, they were trying to build the, the Mission Reach uh, Greenway. And there were some residents who were putting up a fight about it going, you know, 
past their through their backyards and his solution to the whole conflict was just build the damn trail yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> so i think we can say that he yeah. did and they, they got it done he yeah. not only expanded the power of county government he expanded the 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 language that was considered acceptable in in the daily sort of expletives, expletives. Yeah. now before we move off that subject i want to talk a little bit about we don't we, you know we don't know much yet about um what the race will be like and and i think any democrat i mean this four out of the five members of the commissioner's court are democrats so it's 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 this is a democratic county but obviously the the little bit competitive race next november but i think um any democratic nominee will have the advantage um right now we know that um district court judge peter sakai is running he has not had a big formal announcement, but he's, he's sending texts out to uh, potential supporters and letting them know he's running and that he just waited for Nelson Wolf to, uh, to announce that he wasn't going to be running. Uh, Ina Minhata is the state representative, uh, has uh, announced that she's formed an exploratory committee, said she got a lot of uh, people reaching out to her over the past year, um, asking her if she would consider running. And, and it seems that she's, she's pretty serious about this. Um, Carrie, when you look at this, I mean, we know that there's not going to be anyone who's going to be quite like Nelson Wolf in that position, but based on what we know now that Peter Sakai is definitely running, Ina Mihanis might be running in that democratic primary as well. I mean, what do you make of that? It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating um, move for judge Sakai that, that I'm, I'm still trying to, to understand it's, it's such a totally different um, right. skill set. That being said, there is no no more respected, uh, and you can even say beloved, mm-hmm. judge in, in this county than, than Peter Sakai because of his, his work with, with the Children's Court and Children. So there's a name advantage there that, that you normally wouldn't have from someone coming from the bench. That's true. Uh, yeah. And, and, and maybe that's the, his ultimate advantage. But I, I find Ina to be a fascinating Me too. Uh, candidate. I mean, if it's just those two, it's, it's wow. It's a great race. But uh, I think as you wrote yesterday, you know, you know, Ina's would be in that tradition of coming from the legislature, having some experience in the legislature and uh, going to the court and becoming judge. And, and let me ask you a question, because I'm not sure of this. Uh, if if Trish were to run, mm-hmm. would she have to leave, give up her seat? You know, her, her, uh, her term wouldn't be up. And so I, I don't believe I, she, yeah, she yeah. would. Uh, I mean, Greg, I mean, you might know, but I don't, I don't think she would have to, if she's, if she's, you know, if, if her, she's not up for re-election. So, I wasn't sure. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good question. I think we'll, 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 uh, we'll follow up on that. Now, that kind of came up uh, other day with a couple of, of old political pros that, that y'all would know. And none of us were certain about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think that if she did decide to run, that would really make it interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's something we're going to we'll follow up on and um, it's going to be, we'll, we'll stay tuned on that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Elon Musk and his interest in San Antonio. Greg, you've done some great, some great columns on, on him. And I was joking with you before that, you know, you're, probably going to get a call um, from him sometime soon. But you, 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 <laughs> last week, you had a column. Uh, One was about, I mean, for, I guess first I'll mention that the, the story uh, went out. It was a national story last week that uh, that Elon Musk is uh, apparently 
moving his Tesla headquarters from from California mm-hmm. to Austin. So um, there's that. And you wrote about this tunnel idea from the from the airport to downtown <laughs> and it seems to be which the, sounds bizarre totally it sounds right, it sounds really it? bizarre but tell bizarre. us what, what, what's happening i guess the alamo uh, regional mobility authority is looking into this yeah so um elon musk as we know is involved in a lot of different things uh spacex and tesla are his big projects his big enterprises uh, but he also uh, has a company called The Boring Company, which uh, they make tunnels, which sounds dull in itself, and it kind of is. Uh, the The idea behind this company is to reduce, uh, the, you, you know, through the use of technology and engineering, reduce how much it costs to actually dig a tunnel. But really what this company is about is projects like we've heard about now in San Antonio. So they are really pushing these things called transportation loops, which are underground tunnels that are very narrow. And basically, you shuttle people back and forth from point A to point B in Teslas, of course. Uh, but really, I mean, it could be any electric vehicle because, of course, you don't want emissions in a tunnel because that would really suck underground. Uh, so they've been they've been shopping this idea to different com- or cities around the country. Um, there's already a transportation loop in operation under the uh, Las Vegas Convention Center, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's this huge sprawling complex. And so they've got a 1.7 mile uh, transportation loop there. That's really their pilot project to show the rest of the country, hey, this works. They've brought the idea to San Antonio. They were, you know, as I, I initially reported on this back in early August. They've been mm-hmm. talking with you know, local uh, political and transportation leaders about this throughout the summer. Uh, But the Alamo Regional Mobility Authority really took a liking to the idea, so much so that they said, okay, well, we're going to take your proposal to build a tunnel from the airport to downtown. And because by law, we can't just award this contract to you. We have to open open it up to competitors. So that's what they've done. Uh, you know, all the proposals are due by December 1st, but I think most people understand the boring company probably has the edge in this. They've been doing, you know, they've already done their homework on the project. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting idea. It doesn't solve any kind of transit problem at all uh, because nobody complains about a 14-minute drive from the airport to downtown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just not a city that's stricken with, you know, traffic jams all the time, like Los Angeles or any other, you know, major city. Right. Uh, so this really is, you know, in a, in a small sense, it's about just trying to get as many tourists and business travelers from the airport to downtown as possible. But the thought is eventually uh, the boring company might want to connect a network of these underground tunnels around the country and do you know, use them as the basis for the hyperloop. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with this, but these are these are pods. The, the technology hasn't been developed yet, but mm. basically, one of uh, Musk's projects is to build a hyperloop that will shuttle people around uh, in these really sleek pods in tunnels that go hundreds of miles an hour. Uh, Really scary sounding, but it could revolutionize uh, transportation. <laughs> Do we know anything at this point about um, the cost of this kind of underground loop in San Antonio and how much you know public funding would would would, would be required? Where would we come from? 
Yeah. See, that's the, th- that's the catch right there. Like, um, the, the, this very small loop in Las Vegas cost $51 million and it's, uh, you know, it's basically one, like I said, 1.7 miles. So this would cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And I have to think just like in Las Vegas, uh, taxpayers are going to be on the hook for part of that. And that would be hugely prob, you know, really problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I think I, I personally think it would be impossible to go to taxpayers yeah. in Bear County and say, Hey, could you pony up a lot of money for a problem that doesn't solve any kinds of, it doesn't solve any transportation problem at all. It, it's not even addressing a problem. Nobody, well, nobody thinks it's difficult to get from the airport. You know? Well, one thing that you, that you also wrote about, and I think this might be uh, an idea that might have a little more appeal to, to people in San Antonio is the, the, the possible interest in some kind of, uh, transportation system that would run from, from, from Austin to San Antonio. Where do things stand with that? I mean, that, yeah, I guess exactly. that not too much so, is known right about that, right? Yeah, it's, it, we know very little, uh, you know, I, that, that particular column was an offshoot of the reporting I did for the, you know, San Antonio, the uh, airport to downtown uh, project. But that one is really interesting. Uh, I think what they're trying to do is replicate their proposal, uh, for, you know, they, they wanted to link Washington, D.C. to Baltimore uh, by a loop like this. That that project seems to have gone away. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of difficulties in in something that big. And it seems like the D.C. to Baltimore problem uh, project is off the table for now. And if you think about I mean, just think about the Ed- Edwards Aquifer. I mean, you'd have to be drilling through part of that. I mean, that's like, a you know, there are a lot of obstacles to it, but the idea itself is really interesting given the fact that, you know, these are two of the fastest growing cities in the country. They're kind of converging in this, this mega region and we're choked up. I mean, you know, 35 is a nightmare at times and this is a way around that. So it's, it's a really kind of interesting idea. Well, Brian, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, the, uh, this, uh, this project that, that, uh, you've worked on for the past few months. And it's a really impressive piece of work. Not only, you know, you're, you're reporting on it, but just, you know, the, the visual component of this, I think really, really uh, hits home for people. And and you've basically been looking at um, the problem of the quarry mining in the hill country and all the, you know, the, the sediment that's ended up in the, in the waterways there, the dust in the, in the atmosphere. Um, you just talk a little bit about, you know, what, about the, the work you've done in this project and, and what, you know, what, what people should really be concerned about. Sure. Yeah. And I'll try to condense this because it was a, a long piece. Um, I mean, essentially it, it, we focused on the hill country. There are more than a thousand of these rock quarries in Texas, but in the hill country, the 17 County uh, region of the hill country, there's 142. And they've been increasing. Uh, you know, quarries have been around for for a long time. There there are quarries that have been around for a century for for almost a century in the area. Um, but in the past seven years, the the number of APOs in the state, sorry, aggregate production operations, that's kind of jargony. But the number of quarries in the state has risen 65%. And the reason for that is all the growth that everyone knows is happening, especially along the I-35 corridor between San Antonio and Austin. Um, and yes, the, the my story really took a look at the TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and how the state regulates these quarries or 
more specifically how they how they don't sometimes regulate the quarries. And I, I took a I took a hard look at, at a, a you know about close to a dozen quarries that have repeated violations where they are, uh, you know, spilling sediment into rivers and creeks, uh, you know, creating what, what the state calls a dust nuisance. Of course, nuisance mm-hmm. is an understatement because yeah, I was <laughs> by definition, by definition, nuisance means it, it, can, it can harm human health. So I think that's more than a nuisance. Uh, but, uh, you know, looking at looking deeply into whether or not the enforcement process and the compliance process that the state has in, in place is sufficient to really stop these uh, quarries from repeatedly polluting the air and the water. Um, and these th- these places are huge. You know, they can grow to thousands of acres. I was lucky enough to talk two of them into letting me tour the the their sites. Uh, we got video of an explosion. They they set off these controlled blasts uh, where they're they're uh, breaking loose limestone and other other rock to eventually crush it and process it for sale to to build uh, roads and, and homes for the for the the many many people who are moving to Texas every day. I think the an estimate is a thousand people every day are moving to Texas. One of the things that that really stood out to me in uh, I think it was like a follow up that you did to that initial story was about a pecan farmer who is conservative Republican believes in limited government. He uh, worked for ExxonMobil for decades, and he has become really active in the in the sort of fight against you know all this environmental damage that's coming from 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 these quarries. Um, yeah, I mean one of my favorite parts of the the reporting process for this particular story was that, you know, I didn't have to go to the, your typical environmental activists to tell me that this was out of control. Um, mm-hmm. You have the pecan farmer who worked for ExxonMobil for three decades, a lifelong conservative Republican um, who uh, moved back to the land that he was raised on in Comal County. Uh, and uh, saw suddenly all these quarries proliferating around his his ancestral land. Um, his German ancestors had settled it, you know, over a century ago. And then he, had, you know, there was a spill onto his property that that damaged his pecan orchard. And then also the, there's a, a state representative from Marble Falls in Burnett County uh, by the name of Terry Wilson, also deeply conservative Republican, who has been trying for two sessions now to lead this effort to not not eliminate quarries or, you know, rein them in substantially, but simply monitor them more closely, you know, place air monitors Mm -hmm. uh, at their property lines so that, you know, people can actually see whether or not the, the, the concentration of particulate matter is harmful or not, Um, you know, require quarries to uh, reclaim land when they're, when they're finished mining it and uh, do things such as revegetate, the, the, the land to prevent erosion. Um, you know, these things are just, these things are just not in place and they're not required to, to do what, uh, folks like Terry and Mark Friesenhaw the pecan farmer think should be just Mm -hmm. common sense when you're, uh, when you're affecting the land, impacting the land and the, and the environment so heavily. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a tremendous series and I just, I'd really just hope that, uh, everybody, uh, you know, put the time into to to read this because it's it's really impressive piece of work were you gonna say something greg thanks for yeah.
Brian, I was just, I just want to ask, um, uh, again, great job, but I'm always Thanks. interested also in the inception of, of, of a project like this and also just how long it took you. I mean, I know you haven't seen your byline for a while, so I knew you were doing stuff, <laughs> yeah. but uh, just how, you know, just give us an, a brief idea of just how long it took and how many words I think it was in May of this year when I when I got a, a pretty broad assignment from my editor to look into development in the Hill Country because I mean anyone can see when you're driving up and down the highway that there's a lot of construction everywhere. Um, of course, that's you know that you, you can't build a story out of uh, uh, something that broad. You have to narrow it down, and so I I, I eventually uh, you know after speaking with sources who care about the Hill Country learned that one of the big issues are these. APOs or aggregate production operations. And um, so I spent the next four months uh, seeking out sources, you know, uh, asking for documents from the TCEQ, uh, narrowing down what the actual issues are. Um, so yeah, it did, it did take quite a while for it to come together, you know, four months. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, uh, and yeah, like, like as Gilbert said, the visual element of this is really striking. Yeah. Um, yes. When you, look at, when you look at so what's actually you know, how this industrial process actually takes place. Yeah. Being able to see it, it makes such a difference. Um, yeah. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about uh, a great column that Kerry had over the weekend, which was uh, looking at the issue of critical race theory, um, which is a term that's getting thrown around a lot. Um, and I think a lot of people, if you ask them what it means, they'd probably have a tough time uh, giving a coherent answer about that. One of the things that, that happened recently that we saw when we, we had the the state pass a uh, law recently that uh, imposed some restrictions on what teachers are allowed to, to talk about as far as current events. And it was widely seen as, as kind of a, an attempt uh, to kind of uh, sort of block critical race theory because the Republicans have been talking about this a lot, particularly over the last year or two. Recently, we saw uh, uh, Katy Independent School District uh, canceling a scheduled speaking visit from uh, cartoonist and graphic novelist Jerry Kraft. And uh, because you had some some parents objecting and saying that this was going to be about critical race theory. Carrie, you wrote about this, and when you look when you look at this issue and how this term is getting thrown around, I mean, what 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 compelled you to to write this column? It's it's maddening because, as you just said, yeah. no one can can explain what it is. The ones who you, you just said, you know, the ones who have, who have thrown out the phrase the most over the past year, not even year, just two thousand twenty one have been white Republicans. Mm -hmm. and, and black folk don't talk about critical race theory. And no one talks about critical... Now, I, I, now I believe there is, there is, a, there is a concept of critical, critical race theory, but it's, it's, you know, it's mostly in law schools. And actually, I agree with it. But it's not mm -hmm. what its critics think it is. And it's become our era's uh, version of reverse racism or political correctness. You just throw out this term sure. which you really can't define to avoid any kind of discussion that you don't want. And the way critical race theory is used is, is that essentially it comes down, we don't, want to, we don't want to talk about race. We don't want to talk about racism. Yeah. We don't want to talk about our history. Uh, I'm, I'm really going to be interested in seeing how, you know, once uh, now that we have these new laws, what's going to be allowed, what's not going to be allowed. Because I think that even some, some of the, um, 
some books, some works that even critics of, of, of uh, critical race theory might be okay with, say maybe the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, under their mm-hmm. very loose and inclusive definition of what it is, you can't talk about. You can't talk about what Frederick Douglass writes about. You can't talk about a lot of stuff that Martin Luther King talks about. And it's basically an excuse not to say anything about black folks' lives or, or brown Danny folks' Jerry, lives or anybody's lives that aren't your own. Jerry Kraft's work is, I mean, isn't it, a lot of it is, is, is pretty much just about the black experience or what, what his experience was like growing up. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, isn't, isn't that really, I find it really, really very strange that, that, that people would be objecting to something like that. Yeah, I mean, and it, I mean, what what Kraft does in these novels, and I recommend everybody read them, and and they're enjoyable. They're funny, and I actually don't. Mm-hmm. I, I actually wonder if if children get some of the humor in it. Like there's a part, you know, a section in a um, class act where family is talking about the TV show Good Times. I just, but mm-hmm. it, it it everything that you would need to fill in the gaps of ignorance that so many people have about other folks, other Americans, is what Kraft is doing in a very creative and enjoyable way. And yeah, his main characters are black, but all, he has, it's, a, it's a multi-racial cast of characters. And more than anything, they're kids. And they're kids trying to figure out what life is about, trying to figure out differences and just and trying to get along. And they're doing they're trying to do the stuff that critics of critical race theory don't want to do, don't want to take the time, don't want to make the effort to do. My perspective is that, that it, it was the, the 1619 project, which the New York Times did, that it, this seemed to, it seemed yeah. to have triggered something. And, and I, I, I'm not saying that that this issue hadn't hadn't come up before. And obviously, the as you pointed out, the critical race theories, I mean, this has kind of been an ac- academic, uh, you know, school of thought going back decades, but it seemed when the, the 1619 project seemed to have triggered something in a lot of, um, re, you know, re, uh, conservative Republicans that it was, they objected. It went beyond, you know, individual components of it. It was, or individual arguments that they, just the very premise of it seemed to be, um, uh, objectionable to them. Now, you're actually right, Gilbert. That's exactly where this all this stems from, uh, uh, the 1619 Project. Just the idea of, of placing slavery in the centrality of the founding and development of the United States, which <laughs> you, you can't deny. Well, you, I guess you can't <laughs> yeah. deny it because that's what's being done. We are going to deny all this. But just I guess you can deny lots that, of things, that, you know. But. Exactly. And, but, but you're right. It all stems from the 1619 Project and, and the premise that, you know, that's, you have to, that's where you have to go to, to, for America's United States founding. And the sad thing is, is that after George Floyd's murder, more than any time in my life, I saw people who weren't black, who people who were very conservative, who truly wanted to know more about history, about experiences that weren't theirs. And I I think that a lot of that still continues. I really do. But like what always happens in this country, whenever you have some type of progress in whether it's in the legal standing or understanding, there's a backlash. And that's where yep. that's what this this is a back this is a backlash to this to what we thought George Floyd's death was was ushering in, and now you mm-hmm. have people saying no, I don't 
I don't, I don't care. I don't want to know about, about our history. I just want to know about the history that makes me feel good and doesn't make my children feel guilty. Yep. Uh, that's absolutely right. Well, um, I think we're going to wrap things up on that note. I uh, want to thank everyone for, for listening in. Hope everyone's doing well out there and you're staying healthy. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Take care. 